All right, so the last few weeks, um, as we've been journeying through this, we've looked at the identity of Jesus. Um, we looked at last week in session three the, the biblical idea of what sin is. It's a really important foundational lesson last week. So we pick up this week, and if sin is the problem, the cross of Jesus is the solution. So as you, as you look around um, really Western culture, you see the symbol of the cross everywhere, don't you? What, is the, what does the cross mean to different people? What you, would, any ideas as people see the cross? What are people's impressions as they think of that and they see that Christian symbol of the cross? Any thoughts on that as we open it up? What do people think when they see the cross? Yeah, absolutely. They, they properly think of that. What other things? Hmm? Some people, it's a, it's a sort of good luck, luck charm, right? Have you noticed that? They'll wear a cross as, uh, you'll see all kinds of people wear it, and to them it's a symbol of protection, that there's some uh, protection that they get from it. To others, what, what do they see when they see the cross? Yeah? That's right. Some think it's foolishness. There are some people that look at the cross and they think, oh, it's a, some ancient superstition and that's not for today at all. Yeah, that is an opinion people have. What else? When people see the cross, what do they comes to mind? Yeah, so they they think of traditions. Could be their church background or or whatever. So it's a it's a symbol of tradition to them. I think that's true. Some people would view the cross as a symbol of oppression today. And they think of things like the wars that were done in the sign of the cross or they think of those those kinds of things. Um the crusades come to to certain people's minds. Things that So it's interesting to note that you know, as we look at the cross, it has deep meaning to those of us who are believers to think, well, it doesn't mean the same thing as each person looks at it. So any other thoughts on what people, what people think of when they see the cross? So that's really what we're going to look at tonight. And again, the whole point of the study has been to look at these things with fresh perspective, with fresh eyes, as if we're seeing it for the very, very first time. Interestingly enough, the cross is it's come to be a symbol of hope for those of us who trust in Jesus, but there's a bit of irony there, isn't there? I mean, what is a cross? It's a method of execution. It's a brutal, it's a brutal, brutal thing, and we've come to find great hope in it. So that's interesting. Well, as we get into the notes tonight, we look at the explore section. Um, as you've read uh, the previous chapters this past week. Hopefully you've been on this journey through the Gospel of Mark. And we always just take a quick minute to open it up. Did anybody have any questions from the reading that was done this past week? Anybody at all had anything jotted down that they wanted to bring up from the reading? Okay, so let's then go into the questions here. So we've spoken about question number one a little bit. Uh, but let's go to Mark chapter 8, and let's begin our reading for tonight, the, the passage, right here in Mark chapter 8. It begins this way. It says, And he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him, and he besought him to touch him. 
If you remember last week, we looked at the man who was the paralytic. His friends brought him through the roof. That was the healing that we looked at last week. Jesus had forgiven his sins. Well, if you remember the last miracle we looked at, there was a lesson about sin and Jesus' ability to forgive sin. There's actually a, a lesson that's going to be taught with this miracle as well. So they bring the blind man, and they, they just beg Jesus, will you please touch him? They're looking for a healing. And it says that he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. Do you, do you see anything, he says? And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. It's a little bit blurry. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up, and he was restored and saw every man clearly. And he sent him, and he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell it to any in the town. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? Now, I want you to notice the passage is kind of transitioned, right? We've gone from this healing of the blind man. Just keep in mind the, the scene that we saw there. He spits, he spits on his eyes. He says, I see, I, I see men as trees walking. Then Jesus puts his hands on him. He's perfectly healed. And now the conversation that follows, I believe, is related. So Jesus goes out, his disciples, in the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others, one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Now we see two transition points. There's the healing of the blind man, there's the, there's the discussion with the disciples, and now this transition point takes place. And now he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Now, as we look and consider this account that we looked at tonight, well, let me ask you this, um, and we'll use some of the questions that are on here. So that question Jesus asked, who do, people, who do, who do men say that I am? Generally speaking, who do people today say that Jesus is? And I know we've, we've discussed this before, but if we could do this kind of quick, what are, what are some general opinions in the world about who Jesus is? He is, people would say, well, Jesus is a, a good a prophet, okay, or a good man. Or they'll say, what? what? Some people will say, well, 
You know, we, we can't really know who he was. It's so old and so long ago. Who knows who Jesus was? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like a spiritual, uh, they, they would view him, I think today a common, in our pluralistic society, the people, a lot of people would say, well, he was a great spiritual leader. Right? We don't know that everything, would say, you know, we don't know that everything is recorded about him is true, but, you know, he had a spiritual impact, he was a great spiritual teacher, something like that. Those are commonly held views about Jesus is. But you notice there in verse number 29, Jesus points to Peter. First he asks, who do people say that I am? And then he says to Peter, really all that matters, Peter, is, well, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And this does seem to be a turning point in Mark's gospel because it's after Peter identifies who Jesus is that we come to this verse 31 that he begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. It's after Peter understands who Jesus is that Jesus starts to explain the mission, explain the purpose of why he has come. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that was important? Yeah. Any thoughts on on the importance of this? I think that's true. His 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 death thinking of his death would have had a very different impact if they didn't completely understand who he was. So the time had to be right. Right? And that's why you see this progressive revelation of Jesus as he goes through Revealing him. Any other thoughts on that? You look like you're about to say something, but no bell or. Okay. Okay, that's true. That's a good point. So they're expecting, when they're looking for a Messiah, they're expecting a political leader. And Jesus is about to tell them. So they. So they needed to be firmly convinced that he was the Messiah before their expectations of what the Messiah was going to do would be changed. So so when Peter makes that confession, he is rock solid. You are Messiah. You are God's chosen one. You are the Christ. Now now Jesus begins to say, okay, well now let me tell you something about what's going to happen. Right? Go ahead, Kathy. Hmm. Yeah. Right, Jesus? Right. So everything that Jesus is doing is intentional. Right. Absolutely. So once the identity of Jesus is clear, he goes on to explain the mission. And of course, he rebuked... So, oh, well, 
Now, Peter rebukes him. Now, somebody had already kind of said this. Why, why is it that Peter is rebuking Jesus? What are some reasons? So Jesus says, this is what's going to happen, and I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be killed. I mean, he says it very plainly. There they are. They've just seen an amazing miracle, and they're just kind of walking and talking. And Jesus says, by the way, those people that are against me, they're going to kill me. And Peter's instant reaction is he rebukes him. And he just says, you're the Christ, and now he begins to rebuke him. But what's happening in Peter? What are, what are some reasons that Peter's rebuking him? Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's this idea of Peter being Peter being worried. He doesn't want he's you know put all his hopes in Jesus, but what he doesn't realize is he doesn't realize what is going to be accomplished on the cross. He hasn't fully grasped that yet. Now this is this is kind of interesting. I think this speaks to the patience of Jesus, and of course he rebukes Peter, but Jesus is patient. I think Jesus is more patient with, with people that I know, I don't think. Jesus is far more patient with people than we are, right? When people don't un- accept Jesus' mission right away, we get impatient. We're like, no, you need to believe this. this is what you, need to, you need to understand this and get this now. This is, and, and how do you think the story of the blind man relates to this? What we just saw, and now Peter, and all that's going on, what are some thoughts on how does that healing relate? How does it, it really serves, I think, as an object lesson for what's going on with the disciples here? Go ahead, Bill. Right. So he sees with that same blurry vision, right? So because... You know, when I first read this, I, I used to think, like, well, why, what is the purpose of this? Like, if Jesus, like, was Jesus like, oh, I didn't give him enough last time. Let's just get a little more power in there. And, oh, got it right this time. Well, no, of course not. He could have just healed him completely the first time. So he obviously wanted that image to, I think, resonate with the disciples and with those of us that would read this later, that here's a man that, that he encounters Jesus and he starts to be able to see a little bit. And the more time spent with Jesus, the more clarity about who Jesus is. I think that's a good lesson for us too. Is, and really that's kind of the whole purpose of us doing a, a class like this is it's a form of patient evangelism with people. Persistent, but patiently explaining to people who Christ is and showing Christ little by little and allowing the allowing the, the blinders to come down bit by bit. So this is, the, this, is this, um, this process that we see. And Jesus, as, as you said, Carl, Jesus tells Peter he had in mind the things of men, and he says that he is going to suffer many 
many things. He calls, he calls the cross, this is interesting, if you look at verse 33, he says to Peter, thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And just reminding us that the cross, the cross is the mission. The cross is of God. This plan was not the plan of people. It's not a religious scheme. This is God's working. And so the question for every person, verse uh, the, in, on the inside of your handout, that question number six is a little bit more rhetorical. Question number six there is a little more rhetorical. When Jesus says to Peter, what about you? Who do you say I am? No one is a Christian until they're able to give a definitive answer to that question. Once they get a definitive answer to the question, is he looking for some more of these? I pulled them up here, Cal. You can come grab them. Did we lose them? Yeah, we lost them. Would you bring some of those down to your brother? Would you mind? They need them for the teen class. Thank you. Um, a person becomes a Christian that moment when they can definitively answer who Jesus is and what his work accomplishes. And all of their hope and all of their that's the, the moment of conversion, the moment of belief, is when a person can say, not just what does everybody think about Jesus, but who, who do I believe Jesus to be? And, what, and how does that impact my life? And that moment of, and it's, for a lot of people it happens in different times. There are some people, you, you may have come to Christ in a, in a um, church service. I've known many people. It was in a, in a church service where somebody preached the gospel, and you understood it then for the first time, and you may have responded right then. Different churches have different traditions surrounding it. Some people will have people come forward to commit their life to Christ at an altar. Some people will raise their hand or lead in a prayer or something like that. But really, none of those outward expressions are what cause a person to become a Christian. It's the moment. There's a the songwriter um, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, how precious did that grace appear. Does anybody know how the line finished? How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. I think that's a wonderful, a wonderful description of the moment a person comes to realize who Jesus is. That's what it is. That's when you, you pass from death to life. You become a believer become a Christian, when you can definitively answer, yes, I know who Jesus is, and my hope and my faith is in him completely. It's a wonderful experience. If that's never never happened in your life, I pray that it will happen soon. In fact, wasn't it, um, Carl, didn't you say it was reading the Gospel of Mark when that happened for you? 3.30 a.m. This past November, reading this very book that we're studying. you Not in a church, not anywhere, on, on a computer screen. Yeah, understanding who Jesus is and what the cross meant. So that's a powerful thing. Salvation, it's something that only the Holy Spirit can do. Which is why I've just reminded last week when we had a kind of a difficult topic, which is the difficult of sin and the difficult concept of sin, and then we moved into the... The, the teachings about in the Bible about hell, it was just really tough stuff for modern people to, which I realize, and some Christians will try to water it down or escape it, but we realize we're not about convincing people. 
right? We just show Jesus. We just show people Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit does the convincing work in the heart and says, yes. It's not that there aren't reasonable arguments and things like that. We, we believe in advancing that kind of you know, intellectual look at the, at the gospel. But at the same time, there's a supernatural thing that happens. And that's what happened to Peter right here. Well, we're going to focus now on the cross specifically. And we'll watch the video tonight. And let's hope it plays better than last week. Here we go. Sometimes there is a world of difference between the way things seem to be and the way things really are. 20 minutes before midnight on Sunday 14th of April 1912, passengers on the upper decks of the Titanic felt three small bumps as the ship collided with an iceberg. But most people thought nothing of it. In fact, some picked up ice that had fallen onto the deck and started playing snowballs. Below deck, however, things were very different. The ship's hull had buckled in several places. Rivets started to pop out below the waterline. Suddenly, Titanic was laid wide open to the Atlantic Ocean. Within three hours, the ship that was thought to be unsinkable had been completely swallowed up by the sea together with 1,589 passengers. The question is, what do we see as we look at ourselves? Do we only see the upper deck, the way we seem on the surface? Or are we able to see the way things really are, deep down? You may have wondered why the cross is the symbol of Christianity. Why on earth would followers of Christ want to remind themselves of his death, especially a death that was so gruesome and agonizing? But there's another way of seeing Jesus' death, not as a tragic waste of life, but as a rescue. If the problem deep down in our hearts is as serious as Jesus claims, then the cross suddenly becomes incredibly precious, because those two pieces of wood are the only lifeboat we have. Unlike most of the deaths we read about in biographies, Jesus went to his death willingly and quite deliberately. In fact, he came to be killed and he knew it. Here's what Mark says about Jesus in chapter 8 verse 31 and note that the phrase son of man is Jesus' way of referring to himself. He then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. So Jesus taught his followers that he must be killed, and he tells us why in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. To understand exactly what that means, we need to read an account of Jesus' death. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. 
Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lamak sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now Mark is counting according to the Jewish system of timekeeping, so the sixth hour would have been the middle of the day. At the very moment when the sun should have been at its brightest, darkness fell. All this takes place during the Jewish festival of Passover, a festival that was always held during a full moon. So the darkness Mark tells us about cannot be a solar eclipse. Something else is happening here. Time and again in the Bible, light symbolizes God's favor, while darkness represents God's anger and judgment. Something supernatural is occurring at the cross, and the clear message is that God is angry. Now, we won't understand this if we see God's anger as something that is unpredictable and wild, the product of a quick temper. Some of us have seen that kind of anger in ourselves, in friends and close relatives, and we know how ugly it is. But God's anger is not like that. It is his settled, controlled, personal hostility to all that is wrong. Wrongdoing matters to God, whether we ourselves have done it to others or if it has been done to us. And some of us have been treated terribly in our lives. God cares about that. Because he is a God of love and a God of justice, he cannot simply ignore wrongdoing as if it did not matter. After all, we care about the wrongdoing we see in the world. Can we expect our loving creator to care any less? So as Jesus was dying on the cross, darkness came over the whole land. God was acting in anger to punish sin. Listen to Jesus' words in chapter 15, verse 34. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lamak sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus was in some way forsaken or abandoned by God as God punished sin. But Jesus had led a completely sinless life. Not even his fiercest enemies could find any fault with him. 
So why would God be punishing him? And why is Jesus allowing himself to go through this? Remember that Jesus said he came to give his life as a ransom for many. The remarkable truth is that Jesus is giving himself up to be punished on our behalf. He is bearing the punishment that our sin deserves so that we can be rescued. It's not as if God the Son is some innocent third party being picked on by God the Father. As the Bible says elsewhere, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. In other words, Jesus was fully God. As we look at the cross, we see God rescuing us by sacrificing himself. Remember the public gallery containing the record of your life. All of your thoughts, words and actions are up on the walls for everyone to see. There's lots there that we would feel reasonably proud of. But if we're honest, there are other things that we'd want to remain hidden. Perhaps especially in our thought life. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, once sent a message to the 12 most respectable people he knew to see how they'd respond. The message simply said, flee, all is revealed. Within 24 hours, six of these respectable people had left the country. We all have secrets that we would hate to have exposed, but the Bible tells us that all of it has been recorded. Not just the way we've treated others, but the way we've treated God as well. And all of this separates us from God. But because Jesus took our sin upon himself, he suddenly experienced a terrible sense of being in some way separated from his father. That's why Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he hung on the cross. Jesus was taking upon himself all the punishment that our sin, everything on this film, deserves. It's a stunning truth. He died as my substitute in my place, taking the punishment I deserve. The result of Jesus' extraordinary self-sacrifice is this. Jesus paid the price for our sin so that we never have to. The amazing reality is that Jesus loved me enough to die for my sin, for my sin, and for the sin of everyone who puts their trust in him. It's as if the film has been wiped completely clean. And if we want a demonstration that our sin really has been paid for, that Jesus' rescue really was successful, remember what Mark tells us in verses 37 and 38. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. With those words, Mark records the exact moment of Jesus' death, but then turns his attention to something that happens simultaneously in the temple, which is on the other side of the city. He wants us to understand that the two events are connected in some way. When Jesus dies, the 30-foot-high curtain in the temple, which was as thick as the span of a man's hand, was torn from top to bottom. The thick curtain used to hang in the temple, dividing the people from the place where God was said to live. The curtain was like a big no-entry sign. It said loudly and clearly that it's impossible for sinful people like you and me to walk into God's presence. Then suddenly, as Jesus dies on the cross, the curtain is ripped in two by God from top to bottom. 
It's as if God is saying, because of the cross, the way is now open for people to approach me. Their sin has been finally and fully paid for. Mark's description of Jesus' death also focuses on the reactions of people who witness it. I wonder who you most identify with. One group of people is the soldiers. It's their job to carry out the execution. This is how they react to the cross. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. For these soldiers, the main legacy of the cross is Jesus' clothes. They're absorbed in doing their job, and they do it very well. But in doing that, and in their desire for material things, they miss what is going on right in front of their eyes. Many of us go through life doing our duty, working hard, paying the bills. The day-to-day -day busyness of our intense lives blinds us to the true significance of the cross. Another group of people to witness the crucifixion are the religious leaders. Mark tells us that they mock Jesus among themselves. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. These religious leaders are convinced that they already know the way to God, and the cross is not a part of that route. To them the cross is nothing but a demonstration of weakness. They don't see that if Jesus were to come down from the cross, their sin could never be paid for. It is often those of us who think of ourselves as spiritual or religious who are the most vicious enemies of the cross. Because we consider ourselves to be righteous and moral people, we'll only deal with our sin on our own terms. And then there's Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. He has a sign fixed at the cross. It reads, the King of the Jews. Mark makes it clear that Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. He offers to release Jesus, but the crowd want a man called Barabbas released instead. Time and again, Pilate sticks up for Jesus. But in the end, he hands Jesus over to be crucified. So why does Pilate hand over an innocent man to be killed? Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Pilate is a crowd pleaser. Although he knows that Jesus is innocent, the sound of the crowd causes him to lose his nerve and he gives in to the evil desires of others. When he faces a world that despises Jesus, his good intentions are overcome by his own cowardice. That's something most of us suffer from. Our longing for the approval of others makes us behave in ways that we know are wrong. What will people think of me if I were to start trusting Jesus? By showing us these different reactions, it's as if Mark is saying, okay, this is how others responded to what happened. What about you? What do you see as you look at the cross? Are we too busy like the soldiers? Too self-righteous like the religious leaders? Or too cowardly like Pilate? But we've missed someone important. Because Mark also records the reaction of a Roman centurion, a hard-bitten soldier who was a high-ranking military officer. This is how Mark describes it. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, 
Surely this man was the Son of God. This man had doubtless fought many campaigns and seen many men die, but he'd never seen a man die like this. So our final possibility as we look at what happened at the cross is to do what the centurion did. We can recognize that Jesus is telling the truth, that he is indeed the Son of God. Right at the heart of London is the Old Bailey, the home of British justice. At the top is the golden statue of Lady Justice. She holds the scales of justice in one hand and the sword of judgment in the other. The message is clear. If we are found to be guilty, then the sword of judgment must fall. But just across the London skyline from the Old Bailey, on top of St Paul's Cathedral, is another golden symbol. It's a cross. And it's a powerful reminder that although the sword of God's judgment must fall, it fell on Jesus Christ. So what will you do with your sin? Will you take it with you to the grave and to the judgment that must fall? Or will you let Jesus take it to the cross and be rescued? According to some reports, the orchestra on the deck of the Titanic played a hymn as the ship was sinking. The first line of that hymn speaks of rescue, not from the icy water of the Atlantic, but from a greater enemy. A rescue from sin and death. A rescue that removes the separation between sinful people and the loving God who made them. A rescue that is only possible through the death of God's only Son. The words of the old hymn go like this. Nearer my God to thee, nearer to thee, even though it be a cross that raises me. I think um, one of the questions here, we we finish with these final questions. How would you feel if someone else deliberately took the punishment for something serious you had done wrong? And just in human terms, let's let's. At first, I looked at this question. I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to ask that question. But then I realized that if we put it in human terms, let's say that you had committed some crime, somebody stepped up and paid that, took that punishment for you. What would your reaction be? What would you feel? Yeah, you have that that sense of you, that you're beholden to them. What else? I mean, literally, you're you're in that moment. You're 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 guilty, and you know that you're guilty. And the sentence is twenty to life. Let's say somebody steps in and literally takes that for you. What 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 thoughts? What emotions are going through your mind if you could imagine such a scenario? Incredible relief. What else? Yeah, but what could you do? I mean, really, it's. I mean, your life would change forever, right? Out of what what had been done for you. I also think there'd be a sense of like, like complete undeservedness, right? Like, like it's almost absurd. It's almost absurd. Like, why would this? Why would this happen? Yeah, shock, disbelief, like why could this be? How could this be? 
And this is the heart of the good news. When, when we say gospel, of all the things, of all the questions that people ask God, why did you let this happen? Why this? Why that? Of all the questions, the most surprising, the most shocking reality of all should be, why did you die for us? Why? And there's no reason other than that he so loved us. And so as we think about last week and the idea of our sin, and then this, that Jesus would deliberately and willingly and lovingly take our punishment for us, it's astounding. It's astoundingly, shockingly, surprisingly good news. And so we have to think about the last two questions, and for time's sake, we'll just leave these as kind of thoughts for us to ponder. But I really thought it was the end of that video where he pointed out the different reactions to Jesus was very... I thought that was that was very insightful. You know, without and, and just where are you at? What maybe you're if you already are a believer, maybe where were you? Which were you before? Were you that person that was just too busy in life to to even think about him? I mean, I know I that that that, that would be my temptation, I know, and people I know and I'm surrounded with, it's just life is too busy, there's too many things to accomplish, too many experiences to have to really consider what matters until Something tragic happens, maybe. Or very religious people who don't think they need the cross because their good works are good enough. All these considerations. And then that exchange at the end was perfect. As there's the law and the justice, and there's the cross. The cross took the justice, took the judgment. So we have that choice. What will we do? with our sins. So I just want to encourage you, if you're here, I don't assume, I never assume that everybody has made that decision to let Jesus pay for their sins, or you're watching the video. I don't want to assume that you've made that decision because somebody is going to pay for our sins. We will either pay for them with God's judgment, or we will accept the free gift of forgiveness through Christ. If you've never made that decision, don't wait any longer. Do it right, I mean, even now, in this very second. I'd encourage you, just make that decision and say, Jesus, I believe, and I trust you. Thank you for taking my punishment. There's no reason to wait. The work's already been accomplished. It's just good news. It's nothing you have to do. It's just news that you have to receive and believe. Put your faith in Jesus. And if you have, tell somebody about him. Let's conclude tonight with a word of prayer. Our Father, we are so grateful for the cross of Christ. Lord, we can't, I don't think we can really comprehend it. We believe it and we, we pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to help us understand in more, in more of its fullness just what the cross means and our forgiveness. And Lord, I pray for any of our any of us or friends or family who are, are like that man in the miracle, they're starting to see, but they haven't fully seen you yet. Lord, please make yourself known to them. And I pray that nothing would stop them from trusting you as their Savior. I pray that they'd make that decision right, right away to become a, a true Christian, true believer. We thank you for your patience and your, how you draw, draw us to yourself. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen.
Amen. Well, we will say goodnight to those that are on the live stream as we close that out. And we'll take a minute to update our prayer list tonight and go to prayer. Did anybody not get a copy of the prayer list? I'll make sure you get that as well.